in 1 Timothy 3, uh, verses 14 and 15, which will not be there today, but that's the central point of the book. Paul tells Timothy the reason he is writing to Timothy is that we ought to know how we ought to behave within the household of God. Last week we saw that there are three trustworthy statements. First, in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 2, 15, uh, Paul uses the phrase, this saying is trustworthy. What is trustworthy, Paul? That Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is a trustworthy statement. Friend, that is something that you could take to the bank, that Jesus came to the world to save sinners. We're going to see our next trustworthy statement. So we went through this theme of salvation, 115 through 215. Our next trustworthy statement is found here in chapter 3, verse number 1. What is our next trustworthy statement? What is it? Let's take a look and see. First, our first point here, who can be a pastor? Because in 1 Timothy 3, 1, this saying is trustworthy. What saying, Paul? What is trustworthy? If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This seems kind of a, a smidge odd, doesn't it? I mean, if you're trying to think through what trustworthy statements, you're like, you can take this to the bank. This is fantastic. Write this down. Put it in marble. This is what we need to know. Jesus came to save sinners. And number two, what would you write? I guarantee none of us would have written this down. This is not our first thing that anyone desiring the office of a pastor, this is a good thing. There are a few other things we probably would have put in between there. But the importance of the pastoral office, you know, is it really that important? And the answer, honestly, is yes. And let me explain why. So Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is in what city? He's in Ephesus. We see this in 1 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 1, verse number 3. Paul also wrote a letter to the, book of the, to the church in Ephesus. It's called the book of Ephesians. In his letter to the Ephesians, so to this church, written prior to the time where he wrote to Timothy, Paul says in Ephesians 4.8 that Jesus gave gifts to men. Well, what are some of those gifts? In 1 Timothy 4.11, I'm sorry, in Ephesians 4.11, he says he gave the gifts he gave. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd, or pastor, and teacher to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is a gift. It is a gift, not the only gift, but the offices described here in Ephesians 4.11 through 12 the roles there are gifts from God. They're gifts from Jesus. Jesus loves the church. And you've heard me say this before. He loves the church. He's the head of the church, Ephesians. He's the savior of the church, Ephesians. He obtained the church with his own blood. Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts. He gave himself up for the church, Ephesians. He used the church to display his manifold glory and wisdom, Ephesians. These are all things that Paul has told the Ephesian elders and to the Ephesian church. Jesus loves the church. And he gave the church gifts. One such gift is that of the pastor teacher. And if this gift is so important to Jesus, to Paul, and to the church, then we have to ask, how then can one get into this position? Perhaps it's super restrictive. Let's review the verse again. What does it say? Look at verse number one. How restrictive is this verse? I mean, just review. If anyone with a PhD, no? If anyone has the genealogy of, what does it say? If anyone, just anyone aspires. That word means to stretch out, to reach for, to take hold of, to covet. It's even used in a negative sense in 1 Timothy 6.10. 
where we speak of, uh, where Paul speaks of loving money, people craving to have it. It's like uh, ice cream from Sweet Things. And you see him scooping up that Oreo ice cream, putting it in your double scoop in a waffle cone. You're just, come on. Right? You know what I'm talking about. I mean, you're salivating as you walk in the store. Mm. That's, this, that's this word, just craving. Anyone craving for that spot. Now, he's going to add qualifications to that. But it starts just with that. I think I want that. So it's not super restricted. If anyone desires, and then he specifies the office of overseer. There are three words used in the New Testament to describe the office of a pastor. It's bishop overseer, that's episkopos, elder, word presbyter, and pastor shepherd or poimen. These words are used interchangeably for the pastoral office throughout the New Testament. If you want uh, proof of this, go look at 1 Peter 5, where Peter will use all three terms, pastor, overseer, and uh, bishop, all three terms, depending on your translation, he used all three of those in 1 Peter 5 to speak of the same office of a pastor. So you narrow the focus down. Anyone to reach out, crave, grab the office of a pastor is what? What's he doing? Paul says he is desiring a noble task. And it is a task. It is a work. It is a work. But it's a noble work. But he clarifies it a little bit more. As we saw from last week in our discussion, that it first must be a he. He desires Based on the created order that we saw last week, the office needs to be filled by a man. One pastor said of this, church leadership is not for everyone. An essential requirement for church leadership is that he be a man. The indefinite pronoun, any, should here be taken masculine in agreement with the masculine form and also of the adjectives in verses 2 through 6. Just This is how the grammatical structure is set up. That's exactly what it means. That's exactly what it says. And it's based on the end, as we saw of 1 Timothy 2, the created order. Because that's how, what God did. I'm not trying to make stuff up. I'm trying to push an agenda. This is how God created the world, and we're just trying to follow what God has done. The man that desires this office desires a noble task. Now, before we move on, let me uh, ask you to do, a, do me a favor. In the next point, we're going to get into qualifications. But right now, I want you to look at the text here in verse number one, and I'd like you to figure out the number, okay? So how many pastors is Paul speaking of in this text? Meaning, how many pastors can a church have? How many pastors are to lead the church? You got a number there? And we'll get to this with deacons too, because we have a number here, and it's hard to find that number in the Bible, but what's the number? It doesn't have a number. We don't, have, we don't see a number. So if we're looking there, Paul is saying we can have more than one pastor, elder, overseer, and the answer is yes, you can. In fact, if you read the New Testament, you see that where Paul and Barnabas went on their mission trips, guess what they did? They appointed multiple pastors. So in Acts 14, 23, for instance, let me read this to you. Paul and Barnabas, Paul was just stoned in Lystra, and yet he's still continuing the work. And in Acts 14, 23, we hear of him and Barnabas. And when they had appointed elders, plural, multiple, not singular, they appointed elders for them in every church. So every church they were at, they made sure they had multiple pastors. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So again, they appointed, in Acts 14, 23, number, a multiple number of elders. They appointed, and it was with these geese. <laughs> sinful, 
sinful geese. So they appointed multiple elders, they appointed multiple overseers in, not in one church, in every church, regardless of size. This is New Testament practice. According to New Testament biblical practice, the church is not structured to have just one pastor. Now, if we have multiple pastors here, we have to then ask the question, because this is a question I get asked whenever I bring this up. Well, who's the big cheese? Who's going to make the final say? Who's going to come up with the full, the, all the answers? Let's look back at the Bible. What does the Bible tell us? So look back at verse number one, and what I want you to do is I want you to take your pen or pencil and divide it between which phrase speaks of the senior pastor, lead pastor, and which phrase speaks of the music pastor or the youth pastor or the associate pastor. Okay, real quick, run through 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and figure out which of those words apply to which pastor. And what's your answer? They all equally speak to the same office. It's the office of a pastor. And there are multiple in that office, according to Acts 14, 23. It's just their practice. They are equal. Now, a lot of people don't like when I say that, and we joke around about it when we're speaking about the equality of pastors or elders or overseers or bishops, whatever version you're using, whatever translation you're using, whatever term you want to use. But what's happened is that the business world has seeped into the church, and we want a CEO, and I understand that. But I'm not here to accumulate power for myself. I, I prefer that we just do things as what we see in the Bible. I feel like we're going to be better off for it. So if you look at the Bible, you see that's just what it says we ought to do. So again, I understand we want a CEO. Now let me come back here. Again, she's like, well, doesn't somebody have to? So just think of your home. Mom and dad and children, are they all equal in the sight of God? Absolutely. Do you each have different roles and functions? Absolutely. Well, the same is true for pastors. So take a deep breath and it's okay. So you can have different roles and different focuses. But you have to go, are they a pastor? If they are, then they need to be given the same equal respect and authority as the other. Ethan, who looks like he's my kid's son, right, youngster, um, is equal in authority and ought to be treated so. Not because he's old or because he's wise, but because we have appointed him here as a pastor. You voted him in. Then treat him as such. So I know back in the day, being a youth pastor, what it's like to be treated as a pastor in diapers. And people would speak to me in ways they would not speak to the pastor. And again, it's okay. But I encourage you. If we're going to appoint men here as pastors, then we ought to treat them as such. And so I encourage you thinking when you're, when you're talking to him, treat him as a pastor, fully equal. Because the question is, will he answer to God for your soul? In Hebrews, in the text I sent out in our email to the church, walk through that we are to care, the elders, your pastors, elders, are to care for your souls. Is Ethan to do that too? The answer is yes. However, in practice, our church constitution does not agree with the biblical text. Our church constitution states that only I am to be in charge, and the welfare and oversight of the church, Article 7, Section 2, is solely for me. In this way, Ethan has no oversight, according to our church constitution. He's given zero. According to our constitution, he will not answer to God for your soul. Is this good? 
Is it correct? If not, what should we do? Again, when we started this at the beginning, I asked you, if we see in the Bible, tell us to do something we're not doing, what should we do? Pastor, what are you suggesting? I'm suggesting we follow the Bible. But we need the congregation to rise up and say, we're going to do it. And nobody's going to stop us. I'm not going to be a tyrant and a dictator and say, you must do what I say. That's not how we work. We are a body. We work together. But the question is, are we following scriptural practice, scriptural orthodoxy? That's something we got to wrestle through. On top of it, so Christian, Paul and Barnabas, planted elders, plural, in every church. The idea is to spread the load, not to make a dictatorship. On top of that, our constitution states that if I dropped dead today, so if I died, not hoping to, Ethan would cease to be a pastor of any responsibility. He would then come under the deacons. No oversight. He's not a pastor anymore in that sense of having oversight. I mean, that's what this word, if anybody desires the office of an overseer, and actually articles, uh, Article 7, Section 2A, we take any authority given to him and we remove it and strip it away and say, now you're under the deacons. This is not a power play between pastors and deacons. So sometimes we think pastors and deacons are, are team A, team B. It's, we're the same baseball team, some pitch, some bat. We need you both. But we need them each in their own function, each doing what they're called to do. So again, this, so when we say, and this is called, cool, they're pastors directly responsible. If the senior pastor has gone away, or if he dies, he's directly responsible to the other deacons. Are we in compliance with the Bible? Is the word of God our sole authority? Sadly, the answer is no. What are we going to do about it? It's up to you. Encourage us. Let's fall in line. How, when, how fast, what time? It's up to you, church. I have one vote. I don't want 20. And I don't want to be a tyrant. But all we can do is walk the text, point it out. What are we going to do? Do you have all the answers? No. Jesus does. He'll get us there. I just encourage us. Let's try to get to the point we're following as best we can biblical practice. Last one, I want you to review one in this verse here. Look at verse number one. Where in the verse do you see one word? Do you see the word call? C-A-L-L. Do you see the word call in there? Why doesn't it say if anyone is called to the office of an overseer? Why does it say aspire? Sometimes we think you have to have a Damascus Road experience like Paul. You have to have this bright light, and all of a sudden you have to hear this voice of, of God saying, Saul, Saul. It's like, you know, no, I'm not being called. It's not, you, I mean, it might happen that way. There are pastors like me, I remember I was called on that day. God bless them. That's fantastic. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, if anyone just aspires. That sounds good. I'd like to do that. There you go. And some people struggle with this. Uh, over the years, I've talked to a number of men that loved working with souls. They loved discipline. They loved caring for others like a shepherd. And you just start asking questions. Well, why are you doing what you're doing? I mean, you meet the qualifications of a pastor elder. You're able to teach. Why don't, why don't you become a pastor? Oh, man, I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. I, I'm, not an I'm not that sort of thing. I, I'm not being called. 
bring them to this verse. Where do you see you have to be called? I was like, who do you think put the desire in you to shepherd souls? Jesus or Satan? Uh, Jesus. Yeah, that's probably right. So just follow the desire he's planted in your heart. Use the gifts he's given you. But maybe awaken yourself to the fact that it's just what the text says. I'm desiring a noble work. This is good in God's eyes. I meet the qualifications. Maybe I should be in the church in this way. So just something to be thinking through as we move on. That sometimes we think that if you have to be a missionary or you have to be a pastor, you have to have this bright light experience. It's like, no, you just need to be faithful. God will use his word to direct your feet, direct your path. His word is a lamp into our feet, a light into our path. Just be faithful today. And go where God wants you to go. Who knows where it will take you? Just be faithful. So as we're thinking through, as we continue, not only do we have in 1 Timothy 3, sorry, my iPad just died because it's too hot up here. So 1 Timothy 3, not only do we have this, this essence of here is a trustworthy statement, but also we have the overseers to be above reproach. This is that sense of you're not giving the enemy a way to uh, grab on, hold on, lay an accusation at you. He used to be a husband of one wife. Now let me pause here because this is debated over and over again. Let me give you a couple of views. First, there's one view that says that he must be married. Hard pass on that one. Pastors do not have to be married. Paul was, as best we know, single. The one writing this. You don't have to be married. Is it helpful to have be married? Go back to Genesis 1. What did, what did God say? It's absolutely helpful. You need a helper. But Paul also encourages people in 1 Corinthians 7 to be single. He doesn't do so to restrict them from serving Jesus. So you don't have to be married. Another view is that you cannot marry a second person after your spouse dies. So if you're married, your spouse dies, a pastor can't remarry again. Again, seems odd to punish somebody and say, you can't have another help me because your spouse died. I don't know why you want to... Punish a dude and say you can't have a bride again. Third, another view is that you can't have multiple wives. So this was practiced at sometimes in this time of polygamy, of having multiple wives at the same time, but it would be almost like it is here in our day. So there are still people in our world that practice it, but it's just not common. And it wasn't common at this time in the Roman era. Another view is that it could be he's speaking of divorce. That you cannot be divorced. Jesus and Paul both gave permission to get divorced at different times, different scenarios. And Paul even occurs in 1 Corinthians 7, it seems, to get remarried. So I know that's the common thing. We're thinking divorce. But it seems like textually that's not what this is speaking of either. The fifth and final view, which seems like it's the most important the one that seems to come in line most with the text is that it speaks of this is a one literally the text reads in the original a one woman man meaning a pastor is to be sexually faithful to only his wife and that's where that stops and ends that there's one you're supposed to be devoting yourself to in the time that you have it now i know there's debate on that again i'm not trying to i'm not divorced not hoping uh my spouse dies. I'm not trying to get remarried. I am married. This, I have no dog in this fight. Other than that, it's just what the text says. And it seems like it's the phrase, it's a one-woman man, 
speaking specifically of how a pastor is to be sexually faithful to his wife alone. Now, you've seen in the news over the last how many decades, this is not the case often, right? Scandal after scandal after scandal, pastors not fulfilling that text. And so this is some things we're looking at it going, it just seems naturally from the text, that's exactly what it's speaking of. He used to be a one-woman man, husband of one wife. He's supposed to be temperate and self-controlled, respectable and hospitable. There's supposed to be this sense of discipline and work. He's supposed to also be willing to open his home and his house to other people. He's not to be, uh, he's also supposed to be, sorry, at the end of verse 2, apt to teach. Sometimes we think that this means that they have to preach on a Sunday morning. It does not. Paul does not use the word keruso, which means preach. He uses a word that's tied to teaching, teaching in any form. It could be Sunday school. It could be one-on-one discipleship. But a pastor is someone who just, I'm, he can teach and articulate the truths of the Christian faith. Verse number three, he's not given to drunkenness. So he's not a drunkard. Can a pastor drink? We'll answer that in chapter five, so come back. He's not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. There's a sense of the way he lives and acts that he is to be above when it comes to being argumentative. This is a challenge for me because I'm opinionated. It really is. He's not to be a lover of money, which we'll get to in chapter six. He must manage his own family well. So we've gone from his personal life now to his home life. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Does this mean managing my own family well? And you think of, so if we brought another pastor here, let's go, Pastor Bob comes in and he has a four-year-old and he says, come here. And the child says, no. And we ought to, hey, that's it, pal, you're gone. <laughs> Thankfully, you're laughing. So for those of you who don't know, my dad was a pastor. I was not always obedient. And in fact, unfortunately, most pastor's kids aren't. Uh, as the trend goes. So whenever I see another pastor's kid that made it, I'm like, we did it. Um, but just that sense of, I knew my dad loved me and I knew what my dad's desire was for me. And my dad was trying to lead our family faithfully to be like Jesus. Parents, we cannot make our children spiritual. I mean, we wish we could. If you can make anyone spiritual, where would you start? Here. You can't even do that. We're trying to battle through today. Let alone try to make another human being. Be like Jesus. But we can teach and instruct. We can follow that principle that if we will train our child in the way that they go, the principle is, Lord willing, in the end, they won't turn away from it. It's not a promise. It's not a guarantee. But it's that same sense of pastor to lead his family faithfully in that way. Verse number six, we also see he must have a proper testimony, a good testimony from within. He must not be a recent convert. He must not be conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. So we could not hire somebody. We would not hire somebody here as pastor. We wouldn't hire Pastor Bob, even if he's 55, well-educated, but just accepted Jesus yesterday. Like, no, 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 this brother needs some time. At the same time, this does not mean age. This has nothing to do with age. As we'll see in the book where Paul tells Timothy, let no man despise your youth. So it's not age. Could we hire somebody as a pastor that's 20? The answer is, if they meet the qualifications and they fit here well, they, yeah. Well, we shouldn't do that because they're 20. They're a novice. 
Novice has nothing to do here in the text with age. It has to do with spiritual maturity. So by saying 20, guess who you just cut out? Want me to start listing through some names of Christians that you would not allow to be pastor here in your church? So like Charles Spurgeon. You know how old he was when he had his first church? 17. Can you imagine a 17-year-old here? You walk in, hey, pastor, how you doing? I'm doing fine. They weren't going, him, going to hear him speak because of the wealth of information he had in his life experience. They were going to hear from the word of God. Our confidence is in the word, not the person. Brother, sister, please, I beg you, don't put your hope in anything I can give you or any other person that stands in this pulpit. We are broken, fallen, and we will continue to disappoint Jesus will not. His word will not. So if you're like, well, that was Charles Spurgeon. Okay, what about the greatest American pastor we've had historically? Jonathan Edwards, 18 years old. It's not age. And it's helpful for us to understand this. Because when our teenagers start living by faith and we see them, we ought to realize, man, if God's growing them, put them in a role where God can flourish them even further. Do not limit them because of their age. Let God do what he can do. Think through real quick, name for me, the top three kings that you could think of in Israel's history. You're going to name teenagers. That's what you're going to do. They had a simple faith that Jesus rejoiced over when he was asking the children, don't keep them from coming to me. They saw it, they read it, they believed it, they taught it. So don't look down on young people. Just as Paul will say later, let no man despise your youth. We encourage you, as we're looking at this, this speaking of a novice, you could have a 15-year-old that is more mature spiritually than I am. That's not, it's not an exaggeration, it's true. Who knows what God can do in a soul? When you see it, applaud, give praise to Jesus, and fan the flame. And let him go. He is not to be a novice spiritually. Verse number 70 is also to have a good reputation with outsiders. So that he will not fall into a disgrace, into the devil's trap. So look at that phrase. He is to have a good reputation with outsiders. It's supposed to be well thought of. That means at first he has to at least be thought of. The pastor is not to be invisible in the community. He is to be thought of. Now in a big city like New York, people aren't going to know who everybody is. Smaller town, it's easier here in Lexington. But a pastor should have some impact in his local community and should be well, <clears throat> well thought of. If you look at verse 6 <clears throat> excuse me, and verse 7, both of these are protective measures for the person aspiring to believe, to be a pastor. Both of them are protective measures to try to keep them from being puffed up and try to keep them from falling into condemnation and disgrace. So if you see somebody who's a brand new convert, and what we like to do, right, the celebrity accepted Jesus, we should just usher them forward and have them become a pastor. Like, no, 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 no. They need time. They need to grow. And if you look at this verse number seven, we don't want somebody who has a poor reputation outside to come and be the pastor here. Brother, you need to restore that reputation. You need to make things right. If your name's mud in the community, it's not going to be helpful here as we're trying to reach them. These are what we see. 
that are just basic qualifications. And we'll see some more when we get to the book of Titus. But what does all this mean for us today? Earlier, first off, friend, if you're here, earlier today in 115, we mentioned at the beginning that the first trustworthy statement is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Question number one, are you a sinner? I am. I do wrong. Do you do wrong too? Then recognize that Jesus came into the world to save people like you and like me. And I encourage you today to accept Christ as your Savior. You admit that you, like I, that we're sinners, believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God, and we call upon his name. If you have questions how to do that, talk to myself, talk to a Christian friend you came with, and we'd love to walk you through that step. Next, as we look at uh, these questions that we have here today, just thinking through, even for our own church, so church members, so just looking at what the Bible says and what our Constitution is dictating us to do, which should we do? Which one should we follow? Do you want us to follow the Constitution? Or do you want us to follow the Bible when they disagree? I would hope it's the Word of God. So what are we going to do to get it there? Just so it just lines up. That way there's no, you know what, let's not argue over this. Let's not fuss over it. It's just what it says in the Scripture. So that way when people say, well, why are you doing it that way? It's not what our Constitution says. Praise God that that day will never come. Why are you doing it that way? Because the Bible says. Does that not sound way better? May it be so. And someday, it's just, why do you do it that way? It's right here. We're not making this up. We don't need a business model. We don't need the world's structure. It's pretty good. We're good with what Jesus wrote. So encourage us as we're thinking that way. Also, thinking through just men specifically. Do you meet these qualifications? Do you meet these qualifications? Then what are you doing? God can use you, brother, here to shepherd this flock. Doesn't mean everybody has to be paid. You could have a normal job, just like we have deacons come in and give their time. We could have lay pastors come in and give their time. Do you meet the qualifications? You apt to teach, you meet the rest of them. What are you doing? Also, let me follow up the question I missed earlier. Do you think, speaking of that, that Ethan and I are the only two men in this entire congregation? We're the only two that meet the qualifications. Nobody else does. If you do, it's just because you haven't been here long, and you probably only know me and Ethan. We have plenty of men that meet these qualifications. Godly men. Fan the flame. Let's get them wrong. Lastly, if you look at the qualifications that are there, everybody look through those again in verses 2 through 7. Which of those qualifications do you think should not apply to you? So first, if you're a lady, you're like, well, I shouldn't have my own my own wife, going. So, but you understand you should be sexually faithful to your spouse. Okay, let's, let's give you that. Which of those qualifications do you think should not apply to you? It's not like it's this crazy list. Should you have a good reputation with those outside in our community? 
Do you? If not, God can use you. And God can restore those relationships. You can have an amazing impact. Are you a drunkard? Should you be? And God can help you. Get out of that. I mean, walk through the list. Are you hospitable? Having people over to your home? Should you? And how many families could God use you to impact? Christian, God can use you. These lists aren't for amazing Christians. This list is for a Christian. And it starts off with, well, maybe I don't aspire to be a pastor. Well, then maybe you shouldn't do it. But if you love to shepherd souls, if you love people and you want to help them grow and you meet the qualifications, I encourage you, hop on, let's roll. If you're like, I don't have that aspiration to do that, then look at those qualifications and go, you know what? There's some things I could probably adjust. By God's grace, he could help me and I'd probably have a better impact in the world. Yeah, it's a good thing to do. Let's bow forward to prayer. We'll sing one last song. Lord, we pray that you'd help us. Help me, help Ethan, or help us to be the pastors that you've called us to be. Lord, this text is a challenge. It's a continual reminder, Lord, of what's before me. Forgive me, Lord, for how I fail time and time again to be the pastor you'd have me be. Lord, I pray for our church. Will you help us in time? It doesn't have to be today, Lord, in time. Before you call us home, would you allow this church to be just in full compliance in everything we're doing? Would it be found in Scripture? Or would you also work in our brothers that are here that meet these qualifications? Or would you rise them up and say, you know what? I have the desire to shepherd souls. Help me. Help me, Lord, to shepherd well. Lord, for our church, as we think through ways that we could do things better, whether that's having a good reputation in the community or being more hospitable, not loving money, whatever it is in this list, Lord, I pray you help us to do it, not because we have to, but because we love you. And we want to make your name known in this community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.